We are right in between uh, a couple of series. We just finished off our Romans series, so this is a one-off message this morning, and then Pastor Tom is going to take us into three weeks of something special over the next few weeks. So if you don't know who I am, I'm Sam. I'm the youth pastor here. I'm excited uh, to be able to preach in what I call the big people service, not just the youth uh, service today. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into today's message. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together, like Kyle mentioned earlier, to be to all together in one service. God, we thank you for, for that. We thank you that you have been here this morning before we ever showed up. You've been working and moving in our lives this week, and now you're meeting with us here as we open your word. Would you be the one to speak to us this morning in your name? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 15. If you've ever been here for one of my messages, there'll be a lot of scripture that we go through, um, but we're going to kind of uh, have our home base in Genesis 15 this morning. Uh, For a number of years now, I have had the privilege of celebrating our grads each and every year. Um, We put on a big grad banquet, and that's not enough for me. I want more time with our grads. Um, Usually their lives are busy. They're not coming on every Tuesday night. We don't get to see them all the time. It's not in my notes to call you out, but I just thought I would because it's you're here. Um, But yeah, I want more time with them. So we take them to an after party. We have uh, more fun after the grad banquet. What better way to celebrate their great accomplishments than to force them to get into teams and put them in an escape room and see how they do? As if the banquet wasn't enough, being put on display, dressed up in fancy clothes, stuffed full of food, make them cry, laugh, reminisce on their whole high school experience, and just when they're tired and exhausted and running on very little um, energy and a lot of adrenaline, we lock them in a room for an hour putting them in an incredibly intense situation, hoping that they will solve uh, sometimes very difficult puzzles in order to escape. And if they don't escape, then they are submitted to public embarrassment and mocking and shame. Happy graduation. There's this one time that sticks out in my mind. A group of grade 12 girls um, and one of their leaders get put in a uh, creepy hospital escape room uh, they work on the puzzle for the puzzles. They try to escape for, for the hour. Um, everything seems to be taking a little bit longer as they're in there because they're all five or six of them are having to share just one light to try to look through documents, to go on a computer, to search around this room. Uh, at, the end of the, at the end of their time, the host opens the door and lets them know that they failed. And usually when, when you fail, the host likes to ask how far you think that you've gotten in the game. And they tell the host how far they got, and they say, it was really fun, but it was kind of hard. You just gave us this one little light. We couldn't really see what was going on. And the host is quite surprised that they got this far in the game. And then they gave them this look, saying, did anyone try turning on this light switch over here? See, with the lights on, the whole room would have looked different. With the lights on, everything would have become clearer. With the lights on, many of the things that were meant to trip them up or would have become more difficult would have been easier to deal with. And this one piece of the puzzle would have changed the entire game for this group. This morning, I want us to dive into Genesis 15. It might seem like a totally random book on this one-off message Sunday. But in this 
in this chapter, I feel like there's a piece of the puzzle that if we catch it, that it can change the entire game for us. So we're going to start right at verse 1 in chapter 15. And it says this, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. One verse in, we already have to pause because the first three words of this verse say, after these events. What events? What's been happening? What's going on? We could read this chapter all on its own and just study it and find lots of truth, but I don't think that we would get the right context. Words like this are great because they remind us that no chapter in the Bible lives independent of the rest of the story. There is always context. There is always connection to other parts of God's word and God's story. So you can put your finger in chapter 15 and flip back a few pages to Genesis chapter 12. Now Genesis 11 is the first place we hear about Abram, but his true introduction comes at the beginning of chapter 12. This is the moment where God will set in motion a series of events creating the nation of Israel, and he will do it through one man. And what a choice. The Bible says in Joshua 24 that Abram and his family were people who worshipped false gods and lived in the land of Ur. I checked through a few different translations of the, this chapter and this verse, chapter, uh, verse 1 of Genesis uh, 12, and it simply starts by saying, the Lord said to Abram, the Lord said to Abram, he said this, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Bible says that Abram had no relationship with God, possibly no prior knowledge of the God of the Bible, and no documentation is given in these verses that Abram was looking for purpose, direction, or a career change. And this actually might help us understand Abram's next steps. It says in chapter 12 that Abram was initially faithful to God. He gets up, he packs up everything that he has, leaves everyone that he knows where he grew up, and he is faithful and follows God to the land of Canaan. But in the face of famine, Abram decides to take things into his own hands and heads to Egypt, which was not in God's plans. Here, Abram makes a series of interesting decisions. Not only was it interesting that he went to Egypt, he lies about his beautiful wife being his sister so the Egyptians won't kill him. He allows Pharaoh to take his wife as her, or her, her as his wife. And then he gains riches acting as his wife's brother. Even though Abram is one of the pillars and forefathers of our faith, it actually might make sense, looking at these events, that he might struggle to immediately be completely trusting and sold out to God and the faith it takes to follow him. Chapter 12, 17 to 20 says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? 
Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Being kicked out of Egypt, we move into Genesis 13. We see Abram returning to the area in which God had intended him to settle. And honestly, Abram is returning a little bit with his tail between his legs. Abram makes the decision that with everything that him and his family and his nephew Lot and his family have accumulated in Egypt uh, through all of these lies and different pretenses, it would be better for Lot and him to separate, not to fight or compete over the resources of the land. It is interesting how the choice plays out in chapter 13 because it's as if Abram knew that Lot, given the choice, would choose the most desirable-looking land near Sodom and Gomorrah, where cities and the more fertile fields were. It's interesting how the choice um, plays out for Abram because he realizes after the incidents of Egypt and how much he messed up that his place is in Canaan. And even though at first glance it seems less desirable, it was rich in promise because that is where God had directed him to go. God understands that there is a human element at play here and is intentional about reminding Abram about what he has promised him. In Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that, anyone could, that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Remember, remember all of this as we, because all of this will help us understand where we're getting to in chapter 15. It gives us more context. We move to Genesis 14. Genesis 14 begins with four kings from the east declaring war on five kings who were ruling the plains of the Jordan in the west. They all went into battle and the four kings from the east conquered Sodom and Gomorrah taking all the goods and all the people. The unfortunate thing for these four kings is that Abram's nephew Lot was among those who were taken. When the news reached Abram, he armed his men to go and get his nephew. Genesis 14, 14 to 16, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. With his return home, Abram is met by two people um, and, and greets them with two very different responses. First, he meets someone named Melchizedek, a high priest of God, also described as the king of Salem. King Melchizedek brings bread and wine, blesses Abram, giving credit and glory to God for Abram's defeat of these four kings. 
Abram's response in that moment, knowing Melchizedek believes and follows and praises and worships the same God as him, is to tithe a tenth of everything that he has as an act of worship in thankfulness for God protecting him in battle. See? Abram's learning. He's learning. The second person he meets is the king of Sodom. And he comes and he speaks nicely to him, but he says, give me the persons, give me the people that you got back from these four kings, and then take all the goods for yourself. After a battle like this, Abram would have been entitled to everything he essentially won. And yet his response to this king is very different than his response to Melchizedek. I will take nothing, Abram says, and refuses to take any plunder from Sodom and Gomorrah that he had recovered. He had learned his lesson from Egypt and all the riches he had acquired through his lying and deceit and didn't want anyone to step in and be able to take credit for God's work and say, I have made Abram rich. He was trusting in the promise that God would sustain and take care of his family as he fulfilled the promise. Okay, here we go. Chapter 15. After these events, after all of that, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. In light of all that had happened after all these events, Abram's obedience, his disobedience, his faith, his lack of faith, God's protection, God's patience, God's direction. After all of these events, it is interesting that Abram would still have doubt with God and still ask questions about how these plans, how these promises would play out. I love in verse 3 when it says, Abram continued, like, God, I know that you've promised these things and I know that you've said it, and I know that you've repeated it, and I know you've heard me ask, but I just want to continue. I just want to make sure that you understand that I don't understand, and I want you to know where I'm coming from. And I'm sure you might be thinking the same thing as me here. Abram, after all of these events, after all the ways that God showed up for you in your obedience and in your disobedience, why are you not trusting God? His faith took the same work and dedication as it takes us to build our own relationship with God, a relationship that God expects will have this back and forth nature. Psalm 145, 18 to 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the, desires, the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. We are called to trust and have faith. But I don't think we need to feel like we can't go to God. Like we can't go and ask our questions. Like we can't go and share our doubts. That we can't ask for clarification. Especially when it comes to following God who is calling you to live out much differently than those around you. Genesis 15, 4-7 says, Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir, 
Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous, Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. See, when God first came to Abram, he was about 70 years old, just ready for a big adventure. And when God fulfills the promise and and gives him a son and an heir, he is 100. And so in 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 chapter 15, Abram is probably in his 80s. And that might clarify why he might, why he might have some questions for God about the promise. Think about it this way. God's actions and timing can be closely linked to God's glory. God's actions and timing can be closely linked to God's glory. He's saying, I am the Lord that brought you out of your homeland and you trusted me once enough to leave everything you knew and follow me. And I am that same God telling you that you are going to have a son. You are going to have an heir. He wants Abram to trust him in the same way again. But but God doing it in his timing brings himself glory. The passage says, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And then it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Through Abram's faith and belief God in God, he was credited or given the distinction of being seen as right in the eyes of God. A distinction that the Bible makes clear that we cannot attain on our own. And we, we gain righteousness or right standing with God through our faith and belief in what Jesus did on the cross. And yet Abram, Abram, Years before Jesus ever set foot on the earth is credited with that same distinction through his faith. But this is so interesting, and I've never thought about it like this until I was studying chapter 15 this week. One commentator, John Phillips, writes it this way. We should note that Abram was counted righteous, not when he believed the promise that took him out of Ur or of the Chaldeans when he left his homeland, But when he believed the promise regarding the seed or the family line that would lead to Jesus, for in all ages, salvation ultimately comes to rest in the person of Christ. He is the seed. It is not mere faith that saves, but faith in Jesus. Abram believed the Lord. He believed the Lord when he said that he would have an heir and that heir would lead to a family tree that would end in Jesus. And that belief in the Lord was credited to him as righteousness. Abram couldn't have fully understood the implications of the promise God was making, God's promise of offspring and a family and an extensive extensive family tree was all in preparation for Jesus. Okay, so right before we get to the good part of chapter 15, I just want to pause. This, these last few verses are the verses that we've been building to. This is the moment that I talked about at the beginning where missing one piece of the puzzle can make a difference. Where if the, that group would have realized that there was a light switch in the room, it would have made 
a world of difference. Or maybe think of it in another way. Maybe think of it as putting together an actual puzzle. Let's see, show of hands. Who likes putting together puzzles? Mom, dad, you're putting your hands up? Okay, good. Putting together a puzzle without a frame of reference or starting or a starting place is not impossible, but it makes it much more difficult. Everyone has their own way of approaching putting together a puzzle. Obviously, you start with the edge pieces, right? Am I right? Or maybe you are wild and crazy and start with all the sky pieces first because you like punishing yourself. Some people like to sort their pieces by color just to extend the experience a little longer. Others are fixated by a certain part of the picture and want to accomplish that first, and then the rest of the puzzle, if it comes together, it's fine. Whatever your method, two things are true. The end goal is always the same, putting together the puzzle in its entirety. And how you start can affect how the process goes. The end goal is always the same, and how you start can affect how the process goes. God is calling us to a relationship, and like a puzzle, we've been given the end goal. We've been given the bigger picture. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For each of us, even when we know the end goal, how we pick up the pieces and place them into our lives looks different. And in today's passage, I just want to point out that there is this one piece of the puzzle that should be somewhere in the foundation of how you process the rest of your relationship with God. It's not that the implications or the effects of this truth found in in Genesis 15 don't show up and resonate throughout the rest of Scripture, but the specifics of how and why God would go about it this way are nestled at the end of Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 8 to 12. But he said, Lord God, (laughs) Abram again, Abram continued, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all of these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Okay, by another show of hands, in the last week, how many of you have talked about covenants with somebody? I was hoping for at least one, I swear. Okay, covenants is not something we talk about uh, regularly. The Bible Project uh, describes it this way. Covenants are important, are one of the most important themes in the Bible because they act as the skeletons upon which the entire redemptive story is built. They're like the backbone of the Bible. From Genesis on, God enters into one formal relationship after another, or covenants, with various humans in order to rescue his world. A covenant is defined like this, a relationship or a partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They are often, they are often accompanied some, by some sort of ceremony. Covenants contain 
defined obligations and commitments, but are different from a contract in that they are relational and personal. Living in the time of Abram, when God asked him to bring these things, he would have known exactly what God was talking about. Covenants were a part of their everyday lives. And so it makes sense that if Abram, again, continues asking clarifying questions, wanting uh, some sign that he can believe and, and follow God in this, that God would use a ceremony well known to him and the people around him in order to, to clarify. The ceremony started with animals being cut in half and laid out that those agreeing to the covenant could walk through between the pieces. The type of covenant was essentially an oath that someone took against themselves declaring that if they were to break the oath, that they would receive the negative consequences, that they would end up becoming like, like the, the animals in, in the covenant tradition. Or, some comment, commentators say, that their fate would be even worse than those of the animals. Abram would have also understood that it is normally the lesser of the two parties that would be the one to take the walk and take the vow and choose to receive the curse if they, didn't, if they did not see the end of the covenant through. Genesis 15, 17 to 21. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. I only practiced that once. That was good. <laughs> like I said, in the initial setup of the covenant ceremony, it would have been very familiar to Abram, but the next part would have shocked him. A smoking fire pot and a flaming to torch appear and pass through the divided animals. God showing up in fire and smoke or fire and cloud would have reminded early readers of this story of the pillar of cloud and fire that led the nation of Israel through the wilderness. One commentary puts it this way. Incredibly, it is not Abram who bears the responsibility of the covenant curse. God walks through the divided animals alone, bearing the full weight of the curse. God takes the role of the servant for those who should rightly serve him. It points to the Messiah who becomes a curse for his people, bearing the weight of their sin and dying in their place. Abram, like all people, is unable to walk in perfect faithfulness and obedience, but the promises of God are not dependent on sinful humans, but on God. God understands the promise and the covenant that he is making with Abram is huge. He understands what he's asking Abram to believe, coming out of a place of worshiping false gods, leaving everything he knew to follow God. He understands that Abram might have a few questions along the way. He might even have some doubts and he may need to clarify things over and over again. 
So to be as clear as he can, God, in his infinite wisdom, uses a common tradition, widely known and understood, and places all the weight of the covenant on himself. Places all of the weight on himself. Places all the expectations to follow through and complete the covenant promise on himself. It is God. If the terms of the covenant are not meant, God will pay the penalty. God is all in on this. And this becomes foundational in how God propels the nation of Israel and points to the desperate need for Jesus. As we close out our time this morning, I'm reminded of a verse that Paul writes in Romans, Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so what encouragement or reminder can we take from Genesis 15 this morning? Two things. I think that oftentimes we have the wrong starting place. Abram wasn't looking for a life-altering career change. He didn't have an application in to become the father of a nation. For Abram, God wasn't even on his radar because the time he did dedicate to worshiping was to false gods. God was the one with the plan. God was the one with the knowledge. God was the one with the ability to sustain and provide for Abram. Sometimes we make our relationship with God about ourselves rather than him. We have the wrong starting place. Because while we need to have faith and belief in God, sometimes we just have belief about God or are happy to have things about God in our lives. Oftentimes we make the sandwich the wrong way. This came to me this morning. Sometimes You can't make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with peanut butter and then bread and then jam. It just doesn't work. Oh, jam first? Okay. But you can't do peanut butter, bread, and then jam. It's a weird and strange example, but why would, you even, why would I even think about that? Because sometimes... We, because sometimes we put God in that situation. Sometimes we come to a situation in our life and we put us and then God and then a little bit more of us. There's this, there's this symbol that I've been seeing around lately and it's this. O-R over E-D. Does anybody know what this means? This stands for creator over created. Creator over created. Romans 1.15 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Too often we are placing the outcomes, the direction, the provision, the decisions, the hope we so desperately need in our lives and we place them either on ourselves or on things that have been created that may help for a moment but don't last for a lifetime. Things that would have never walked through that covenant tradition for us. That never would have made that promise. That never would put themselves or itself on the line for us. 
Rather than starting with the creator, the same creator that was willing to make a covenant with Abram and put all of the responsibility of that covenant on himself. What order are you living in right now when it comes to the things in your week? Is it creator over created? Him over us? Or do you like to live with it flipped the other way around? The second thing is the pieces that we hide. When I was growing up, I found, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here, the perfect way to do a puzzle. Okay, are you ready? What I would do is my parents would start a puzzle, and I would nonchalantly walk through, and I would pick one up. I'd just take it to my room and, like, put it somewhere. And then I would let my family spend hours working on the puzzle, you know, working on the sky that nobody wants to work on. And then I would just come in right when they were finishing, and they'd be looking for that last piece under the table, and I would just put it in. And I'd have the satisfaction of being the one that finished the puzzle (laughs) without any of the work. I did this so much over the years that when Melody and I got married, we bought my dad a puzzle one time and gave it to him for Christmas. And about a week later, I get this call from my dad. He says, where is it? Where, where's what? I, I don't have the last piece to my puzzle. I said, Dad, that was a sealed box. There's no way that I could have, you know, opened it and then carefully opened the plastic bag that all your pieces are in. It just happened to be a coincidence that the puzzle that we bought was missing one piece. Here's the thing that happens sometimes is we have a table that represents our life And sometimes we like to give it to God, but then come back and grab pieces that we're not sure about giving him, and we want to hide them away. And it may be that we've allowed these things to become bigger in our minds than the way that we view God. Maybe we've allowed these pieces to become uh, too scary in our life, or Maybe we've even worried about what God would do if he got a hold of that part of our life. Maybe it's something that we have to give up. Maybe it's something we don't want to give up. Maybe it's something that we just don't want to deal with. Maybe we're worried that it's going to be painful or or hurtful or we can't see what it would look like on the other side of that. And so we just take that piece and we hide it away. And we let God work on all of the other stuff that we're comfortable with and yet we hide that one piece away. And yet the same God that was willing to flip a covenant tradition on its head in order for Abram to understand the lengths that he would go to for him is the same God who sent his son Jesus, giving up everything so that we didn't have to hide any of the pieces of our lives and we could trust him fully that he would keep the covenant promises to you. Sometimes we make it too much about us And in Genesis 15, God is clearly saying that it's not about us, that we will never live up. And yet that's okay because we have the God of the universe that's willing to walk through this covenant tradition to show us the lengths that he will go. And Abram didn't even know that his obedience at the beginning would lead to the point that we look to all the time of Jesus, his life on this earth and his death on the cross and his resurrection on that third day. And those are the links. Even more than walking through cut animals to prove a point to Abram, he sent his son to die on the cross 
so that we would have the right starting place when it comes to those moments in our life and that we wouldn't have to steal pieces off the table and hide them from God. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and get ready. We're gonna sing a song called Waymaker. And Kyle told me that this was the song that he picked and I said, thank you, Holy Spirit. Because we didn't talk about what I was preaching and what he was gonna be singing, but the words of this song Sometimes you can sing a song over and over again and like you can read the Bible and it seems like you've heard that song, I've heard those verses, I've heard those lyrics before. And yet I want you to listen to these words, I want you to sing them out, possibly even in a response today about what God has spoken to you in Genesis 15 this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning again. We thank you for our time together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you know that we need reminders about our lives. That you're okay with us coming to ask for clarity. You're okay with us asking our questions. But you are calling us to put you ahead of ourselves. You're asking us not to hide pieces from you because what you have for us is better than than, than what we can make out in our mind. And so I I just pray that as we go about our week, as we leave this place, as we sing this last song, that you would be reminding us of ways that we we can step into that truth, that we can start in a right place, that we can put you first in your name.